And please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. We'll actually be beginning in verse 15 for our reading, but we will be paying uh, careful attention to verse 18, as that will be our sermon text this evening. Now, as you're turning there, I want to remind you that Paul has been training us to walk in a certain way, uh, as early as chapter 2, to walk in good works, to walk in love, walk as children of light. And now we see a continuation of this theme, although he is not uh, telling us necessarily to to walk here in verse 18. It's a carryover uh, as we move into verse 18 from verse 15. And look carefully then how you walk, uh, not as not as unwise, but as wise. And so we're in this uh, section of the wise walk of the Christian. And we get added to that, as we'll see in a moment, uh, that this is also a spirit-filled walk. You know, you will be filled with something as a person. Uh, Your life cannot remain a vacuum. Uh, Whenever there's a space to be filled, it will be filled. And so uh, we see something very particular uh, that we are to be filled in and with as a Christian. And most basically, uh, as a Christian, it's the Spirit of Christ uh, that is in you. Uh, You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. And that's one of the major themes that we've been looking at in Ephesians, especially in the first three chapters, if you've already forgotten, although that was quite a while ago. And so just as you are in Squamish tonight, uh, Squamish is your realm, as a Christian you are in the Spirit And the Spirit is in you. You occupy this new realm of life in the Spirit. And if we were to start to compare uh, and contrast um, other ways that you can live your life, uh, it would be in the flesh. And that that would be a negative way to live. That's one of the great contrasts that Paul brings out in other letters, like the letter to Galatians. uh, That you were to walk keeping in step with the Spirit, not to walk in the flesh. And uh, so we come tonight... Uh, as we focus once, refocus once again on the Spirit um, and the work of the Spirit in us, uh, we need to keep this in mind, uh, that you are in Christ as a Christian, and because you are in Christ, you are also in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. You are the household of God, the dwelling place of God. You are the true temple. And of course, the true temple was where God's Spirit would come and meet with His people, and so that is us. We are the Spirit-filled ones. And as such, then, uh, as those who are filled in the Spirit, uh, we are to become under the influence of the Spirit, to no longer be under the influence of our flesh. For our flesh has been crucified with Christ, and the life you now live, you live in the Spirit unto God. Uh, And that doesn't mean that there's no real struggle uh, in the Christian life with sin, uh, because the struggle is still real as the, the body of flesh, that sinful flesh, still clings so closely uh, to each one of us. Um, but Paul, uh, as he's been teaching us, especially in chapter 4 and now into chapter 5, that although the flesh clings so closely, uh, you are no longer under its control. You are no longer under its enslavement. And that's all really good to keep in mind then as we uh, turn to our text this evening and read of it. Here in beginning in verse 15 of chapter 5 through verse 21, with particular emphasis on verse 18. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, or in the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let us pray together briefly. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word uh, stands. Uh, No matter what man thinks of it, uh, no matter how man may try to pervert it or undermine it, uh, your word stands. It stands with the full weight of your authority as the God who has spoken it. And we give you thanks that you have spoken it so clearly. We pray that you would help us to receive it clearly this evening. Grant us richly of the Spirit uh, who indwells us as your people. Grant us richly of him that we may understand uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures by and through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so illuminate these truths to our hearts and minds that we may be filled with them and may walk in them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's much confusion today about what a spirit-filled church looks like. Many claim to be uh, the only faithful church to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to manifest the activity and the power of the Spirit, uh, to be truly spiritual today even seems to uh, really throw religion out the window and religion under the bus. Uh, to be spiritual, to be the spirit-filled church seems to be uh, the mission and the motive uh, and, the, and the, the reason why many churches exist today. And it has also become vogue, uh, in vogue for many Christians today and for many years now to say things like, well, I'm not... I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And so there's this phraseology that gets thrown around a lot today about being spiritual or about being a spirit-filled church. So we need to understand clearly what the Bible says uh, about being spirit-filled or what a spirit-filled church likes according to the biblical perspective. In order to do that, I think we need to begin where Paul uh, is here and ask the question, Well, what does a spirit-filled Christian look like? Because the church is made up of Christians. What ought a spirit-filled Christian to look like? And that's what Paul puts before us then uh, in these verses um, that we read tonight. And we're going to take up this first part and looking at verse 18. And we see then uh, that a spirit-filled Christian is not to be filled with with excessive wine, or as he puts it here in verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine. In other words, the spirit-filled Christian is one who's not under the control of something uh, that is not the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may be thinking in this prohibition here that Paul is giving to Christians, well, it's a good thing Paul didn't say beer or whiskey or scotch or marijuana. But you'd be wrong to think that Paul is only limiting this prohibition to wine. Wine simply would have been the most common drink of the day in the first century, uh, the most accessible and uh, frequent substance at meals. 
Uh, even even at the at the Passover meal or even at the Lord's Supper, wine was a part of the table there. And so it was a common place to drink, and therefore it was prone to being abused. It was prone to being uh, used excessively. And so it is a great word uh, that encompasses any intoxicating, inebriating substance. And I think to further back this up, we know, as with all of the law's commands, uh, they are comprehensive in their scope. Uh, we can think of murder. It just does murder, or the thou shall not murder, or thou shall not kill command, uh, isn't just dealing with the physical act of taking someone's life. As we've been studying through the larger catechism, uh, we've learned that it, it forbids a lot of things. And Jesus points us to one of those in the Sermon on the Mount, that even uh, having unrighteous anger in our heart towards a brother, or saying an angry word in unrighteous anger towards a brother, is breaking the sixth commandment of thou shalt not kill. And so the law is comprehensive. Uh, and we ought to appreciate that uh, reality when we come to any of the commandments of God. And remember that it is a Pharisee who looks for a loophole in the law in order to escape true righteousness and thus resemble, as Jesus said, a, a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. A Christian looks for the comprehensive application of a righteous commandment in order to know the righteousness that they have received in Christ and the righteousness that is now to be renovating them from the inside out by the righteous spirit of Christ. And so that is why the law uh, continues to be found upon the lips or upon the pen of Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He continues to direct us to that perfect standard of righteousness, not something we're to try to find loopholes around. And so uh, Paul is saying here, do not get drunk with wine as a blanket prohibition against all drunkenness or all abuse of any sort of intoxicating substance. Now, I do want to make uh, one clarification in terms of an exception uh, that I think we can make here, and that's in the case of medicinal treatments or medical treatments or proper patient care. When we're talking about pain management. You know, sometimes uh, there's pain management that is required, uh, and substances are used uh, that take over uh, the body's senses. Uh, that even shut down some of our bodily systems uh, that knock out our mental alertness for surgical purposes. And, the, and these are kind and good uh, ways to use uh, substances uh, that do those sorts of things. But I think the difference in, in uh, our culture and in our minds is, is so clear that I don't need to expand on that exception. And so, Paul is teaching that intoxication by any substance outside of medical necessity uh, is inconsistent with intoxication by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, uh, keeping in step with the Spirit, we could say, is not walking in the stupor of drunkenness. And in fact, Paul's prohibition on drunkenness here in Ephesians 5.18 uh, is a direct quote uh, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Proverbs chapter 23 verse 31. And I want you to turn there with me to Proverbs chapter 23. 
So what I think Paul is doing here is he often does with the Old Testament is he gives us a, a brief little snippet. He was likely uh, familiar uh, with most of the Old Testament and it just seems to sort of roll off his tongue and uh, roll off the end of his pen as he is writing uh, Scripture. Uh, but he's always giving us a little fragment and not the entire verse, uh, but just a portion of it. And I think w- the way we have to see that is something uh, like a hyperlink. Uh, that we need to click on it, and it needs to take us back so we can get the fuller context uh, in which we find that fragment. So as we find this fragment from Proverbs 23, uh, verse 31, I think we we will glean much from uh, larger chunks of this chapter. Now, of course, Proverbs are where we find uh, the wisdom of God, and we are still in Ephesians in this section of walking uh, as wise, not as unwise. And so it's very fitting that Paul would would, uh, call to mind uh, these chunks from the Proverbs. Look with me first at Proverbs 23, uh, verses 19 uh, through 21. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. And slumber will clothe them with rags. And so we see here, be not among drunkards. Uh, and so we see, uh, really, in, in line and in the spirit with the same prohibition we, we read in Ephesians 5.18, uh, to, to not get drunk with wine. We also see to not even be around those who are notoriously drunk with wine. Uh, do not keep company with such that will drag you into their practices. But he also doesn't limit it there. We've been speaking about uh, mind-altering substances, but he also says, or among gluttonous eaters of meat. And so, uh, really, we could even expand that prohibition even further uh, to things that may not alter uh, your mental status. Uh, But it's an overindulgence, even more broadly speaking, on any of the good things uh, that God has given uh, for our enjoyment and for our nourishment. And so we see, then, this prohibition... Um, to, to even gather and to be found among uh, those who would be drunkards and, and gluttonous. And we see the consequence of that, right? They, they drive into poverty. Uh, if you spend, which is, which is a very practical uh, consequence, if you spend uh, all of your money uh, drinking and eating excessively, uh, you will have a none left. And so... Uh, will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags as, as you overindulge in meat and drink uh, there is a sleepiness a food coma as we oftentimes call it or a passing out um, and so slumber uh, clothes uh, the drunkard and the, the glutton uh, but Proverbs 23 is not uh, finished on this topic in fact we have a much larger section to read here Uh, beginning in verse uh, 29. And we'll read 29 through 35. It begins with these questions. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. 
You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Well, we see uh, really the experience here highlighted for us of one who is given uh, to much wine. Uh, We see that Proverbs 23 is is very much in touch with reality, uh, that that it describes for us in great detail uh, someone who has come under the influence of, uh, of wine. Those who have tarried long over wine. Uh, one who has great sorrow, great strife, complains. One who has wounds without cause. One who has redness of eye. Uh, but we also see then uh, these are further consequences. Uh, that in this description, uh, we see that there's this numbing of uh, the pain. The pain receptors down in verse 35. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not uh, feel it. And so this is the state of someone who has uh, numbed even their sensory uh, aspects of their body uh, with a substance. And this is what is being prohibited here. And the Bible lays this out so clearly for us in giving us this wisdom uh, not so that we can take a step back and say, yeah, well, this is, this is wise, but I could probably find another wise way to um, drink excessively, or I can always find another wise way uh, to incorporate this into my life. That's not how the Bible uses wisdom. Uh, the Bible, uh, when it talks uh, about being wise and therefore avoiding excessive drinking and avoiding a drunkenness, uh, it's basically saying, no, this is the, this is the moral standard. Wisdom, biblically speaking, sets the moral standard for your life. Not just to lay out these consequences and not just to lay out the description of what drunkenness looks like, but to actually say, listen and be wise and do not indulge in these things. In other words, if we could begin to add to what Paul is saying here, uh, to walk in drunkenness is utterly inconsistent for a Christian. And we see that as we begin to heap New Testament passage upon New Testament passage in this regard, that the biblical wisdom is not just a suggestion for your life, but biblical wisdom is essential to being a Christian. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a verbal abuser, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. Okay, so once again, picking up on those earlier passages in Proverbs uh, 23, to not even be found amongst uh, these people, especially those who call themselves uh, believers, brothers or sisters in Christ. And we also learn from the New Testament that it is utterly inconsistent for an officer in the church, whether an elder or a deacon. So not only a general prohibition uh, for Christians, but also Christian leaders. 1 Timothy 3 Uh, Verse 2 says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Deacons likewise, verse 8, must be dignified, not double-tongued, 
not addicted to much wine. It's also utterly opposed to what we are filled with, or uh, as we see uh, these two brought together in the life of John the Baptist in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, Listen to how uh, Luke brings these two concepts together of wine and the Holy Spirit. Uh, And speaking of John the Baptist, we have, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall never take wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So the biblical author there begins to unite these two concepts, that being filled with the Holy Spirit is completely antithetical to being filled with much wine. In fact, uh, John was a bit of, a, of an ascetic. Uh, he he w- was to live a life of a higher standard uh, as the forerunner to Jesus Christ. Uh, therefore, he was never even to touch uh, alcohol or to touch wine, uh, which is probably the reason why Jesus was slandered so much for being a glutton and a drunkard, because he did touch uh, uh, food, normal food. He didn't just eat locusts and honey, and he did touch wine. Uh, but we see that there is this uh, connection Uh, that if you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot. It is utterly inconsistent to be filled with wine. That's the theme that begins uh, to emerge and why it is inconsistent for a Christian generally. It is inconsistent for an office bearer in the church. And it would have been inconsistent for John the Baptist uh, to even touch the stuff. Therefore, we see that whether we're in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, being drunk um, uh, with with alcohol of any sort or being under the influence of any mind-altering substance is not to be indulged in. And we get uh, more of an idea as to why this is the case in the phrase that Paul uses to follow up uh, with this prohibition where he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. For that is debauchery. And it's here that we begin to see that drunkenness is not just something that uh, will cause you to wake up in the morning and wonder how you got those wounds. Uh, It's not just merely a social uh, nuisance. Uh, It's not just uh, something you can get a ticket for uh, by the police officers in town. Uh, It is debauchery, Paul says. And debauchery, as we're going to see, is a serious offense against God. Uh, That is why... uh, It was used to classify the entire life of the prodigal son in his rebellion. The one who loved stuff and pleasure more than his loving father. And if you need a reminder of that, you can look at Luke chapter 15. Um, And I do want to point your attention at least to verse 13 of Jesus' teaching there when he says, uh, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country And there he squandered his property in reckless living, or he squandered his property in debauchery. Uh, That's the same root word there, uh, reckless or debauched. And so what we see the prodigal son doing there is squandering wealth uh, to get a temporary high uh, through drinking, through partying. Uh, That's the picture uh, that is before us, that he used the money uh, to be high on life. Uh, for a short while. But we see then that uh, that de- life of debauchery 
what it resulted in, it, it resulted in a life void of substance, a life uh, that he was living down with the pigs in the troughs, uh, basically scavenging for food uh, after having lived a reckless life, a debauched life. And that's how Jesus then presents uh, the prodigal son, uh, one who was immersed in debauchery. And it is not a life uh, that Jesus was holding forth as something to be uh, exemplary or favorable. It was something to be pitied uh, as, the, as, a, as really the, the utmost way to rebel against the Heavenly Father would be to go and to live a debauched life. And so we ought to stop here and internalize then uh, what Paul is saying here about uh, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Uh, he is saying, uh, you know, if you think about the prodigal son and how the debauchery of his life brought him to near ruin, so will drunkenness lead to near ruin in your life and absolute ruin if you don't repent. So that's the only thing that saved the prodigal son in the end was repenting and returning to uh, his loving father. And we ought to then recognize that um, drunkenness is never to be used as a a coping mechanism uh, in the fallen world. In fact, many come to drunkenness, we could say, as as a quick fix or a, a temporary solution in their minds, thinking that in this fallen world, uh, in the pain that I feel or in the difficulty that I find myself in, I at least need this for now. Uh, but we must remember that this drunkenness, this debauchery, anytime Scripture puts it forth, it leads to destruction. It leads to a miserable and pitiable life. I want to ask you to think about how many tragic stories that you know Uh, begin with a challenge or a problem or desire like this. I just wanted to be accepted by my peers, or I was feeling stressed after work, or I was hurt and heartbroken by this or that or by someone, or I was struggling in my marriage, or I just wanted to enjoy life more fully, or I just wanted the next best experience. And when have you ever heard in your entire life of a challenge like this or of a uh, problem like this solved or a desire like this fulfilled with drunkenness or substance abuse? Can you think of anyone in your entire life, maybe yourself included, when you have thought those very things, that alcohol or that substance abuse ever actually provided the solution to the problem? Drunkenness will destroy rather than bring the real solution. And so the outcome of resorting to drunkenness on a mere practical level as a coping mechanism for life in this fallen, sinful world, it never pays off. It can literally empty your bank account. It can compromise your health. It can wreak havoc on your relationships. It can unravel anyone's ability to trust you in the workplace or rely on you as a family member or a friend. And from a moral standpoint, drunkenness is a sin. It lacks conformity to and transgresses against the law of God and the God of that law. 
So drunkenness as debauchery is a sin. And Scripture speaks clearly that on account of these, the wrath of God comes. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3-5 through 5 says it this way, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so with drunkenness and debauchery, the scriptures are clear. It is sin that is to be judged by the Lord of all the earth. And, and I give that reminder because oftentimes when we look at things like drunkenness today, uh, we can sometimes view it first and foremost as a medical condition to be treated or as a genetic predisposition uh, to be excused. But you will search high and low in the scriptures and you will always see that drunkenness is categorized as a sin deserving the wrath of God. God doesn't judge people for medical conditions. God doesn't judge people for genetic predispositions necessarily. And I say that last part necessarily because remember, we are all genetically predisposed to sin after the fall. Yet that is not an excuse for any person anywhere to indulge in any sin. Sin is never to be excused. Drunkenness is always categorized and classified according to the scriptures as a sin so first and foremost then drunkenness which is debauchery is not a medical condition to be treated although medical professionals may need to be involved in the solution it's not a family genetic problem uh, to be blamed so that you can slough off personal responsibility no here's the good news for the drunkard that as a drunkard, you are not a helpless victim. As a drunkard, you are a sinner. And as a sinner, you are not called to make excuses, but you are called to repent. And the good news is, it's the Spirit of Christ that gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. That no matter what sin it is that we indulge in, the good news of the gospel is that Christ overcomes our sin. The good news is that sins never dictate your identity. You have a new identity as a Christian. You have a new identity as one who lays your sin at the foot of the cross and looks to Jesus in trust and in faith. We saw in Ephesians 4 that you cannot uh, have a dual identity as a Christian. Paul said, let the thief no longer steal. I'd rather let him work with his own hands and have plenty so that he can have enough to share with others. A complete reversal of the life of the thief. A complete reversal of his identity. Same thing with the drunkard or any sin. You don't get to claim any sin as your identity when you're a Christian. So we could say something similar about the drunkard. Let the drunkard no longer drink. Rather, let them be filled with the Spirit. Walking in righteousness rather than walking in the stupor of drunkenness. 
That's the good news, is that you are not a helpless victim of your genetics. You're not a helpless victim uh, of a medical condition. You are a sinner that can be helped by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God. And so, the Scriptures command, do not get drunk, do not be debauched. And here's the thing about Scripture. If it prohibits an activity for a believer, the believer can heed uh, the prohibition. Remember, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, not for sinful enslavement. Sin no longer has a strong uh, a stranglehold on you when Christ holds you. And so Paul is saying, dear Christian, stop filling your life with sin. That is a command that you can heed with the Spirit's strength, which is where Paul takes us and where we need to end tonight. That last phrase of verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit or be filled in the Spirit. Now I say in because uh, I don't want you to think that um, you fill yourself with the Spirit by doing a certain activity. That's not the idea here. In fact, the actual preposition is en in Greek. So it's being filled in the Spirit. And we already know that we've been uh, filled with the Spirit. The Spirit has come to take up residence in us uh, by regeneration and by becoming uh, the true temple of God. And so the Spirit is already with us, but we need to be filled in Him. As He is in us, we need to be filled with Him. And in him, there needs to be a fullness that begins to overflow and emanate uh, from our lives. A fullness that looks like coming under the influence uh, of the Spirit. And no longer coming under the influence of wine or the flesh. And so, uh, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with or be filled in the Spirit. I read from 1 Peter a little bit earlier uh, about the the judgment uh, that comes upon those who give themselves uh, to uh, drunkenness, to drinking parties, to uh, that flood of debauchery. Uh, But around that verse, uh, Peter says some other remarkable things that I want to read as we close. And I read them uh, in this light. If, if you want to draw one sort of conclusion uh, from what we've considered so far, is that the Spirit-filled life uh, of the Spirit-filled Christian is really a life of stewardship. Okay? You can think back to the prodigal. He squandered everything in reckless living. He squandered everything by living a debauched life. Okay? And, and that's what Paul is saying here. Don't live... A debauched life. Don't live a life in which you squander the things that God has given you. He's given you health. He's given you a mental capacity. He's given you a physical capacity to serve Him and to serve your neighbors and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, if you want one sort of concluding statement on uh, the Spirit filled life from this uh, particular verse, we could say the Spirit filled uh, life is one of stewardship. You're to steward all the things that God gives you. You're not to squander the good things, and you're not to abuse the good things, but to steward them properly rather than squander them. So I want to read the rest of the surrounding context of 1 Peter 4 that I read earlier. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then those verses that I read earlier. But Peter goes on to say, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Verse 7 of 1 Peter 4, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then jump down to verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards. Excuse me, as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit so that you can be a steward of God's varied grace that He has given to you as a Christian. That you are to steward the grace of God He's given to you. That you are to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded. You are to be fruitful in your prayers. That you are to be fruitful in your service towards one another. Having been called by the resurrecting gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to newness of life, to life in the spirit, not in the flesh, do not get drunk with wine. For that activity is not your identity uh, as a spirit-filled Christian. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at the specific way that Paul uh, coaches us further uh, on how to be filled in the spirit who indwells us. Uh, But for tonight... Uh, remember that as you've been given the Spirit, uh, be filled in Him and steward all that God has given you and don't squander the grace that He has lavished upon you. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the Spirit that indwells us. We thank You that we no longer have to live lives that are enslaved to sin, especially, Lord, for those who have struggled in the realm of a substance abuse, For those who have sought pleasure, for those who have sought a coping mechanism in things like alcohol and mind-altering substances, uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that you provide the solution. That through faith and repentance, Lord, in turning away from that sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, you grant richly of the Spirit who strengthens us, who renews us, so that we are no longer enslaved to sin, but can live under the influence and the dominance of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that to be a reality in each of our lives. We pray that in the lives of our loved ones. And, Lord, we pray uh, that we would constantly be on guard, constantly be watchful uh, for those things uh, that hinder our stewardship of the grace uh, that you have given to us. And so, Lord, protect us, uh, be with us, and lead us and guide us that we may walk wisely as spirit-filled Christians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.